Welcome to this bonus episode of the Original Doll Podcast. This podcast will feature backgrounds to original cover songs, videos, and performances that have played a part in the life of Britney Spears. There will be stories and interviews with people from all aspects of the entertainment industry. Songwriters, producers, DJs, casting agents, radio insiders, choreographers, costume designers, and more. I created this podcast as a fan of music, and I wanted to use my Latino voice to shine the light on the arts. Many people see only a fraction of what it takes to be a global superstar. In the original Dal podcast, we deep dive behind the scenes to show many aspects of the entertainment industry rarely heard on podcasts. We also believe in doing something different. At the original Dal, we believe in being philanthropic. On our socials and Patreon page, we will have links on how to help others. Oftentimes, the arts are the first removed from schools because funding is cut. The goal of this podcast is to shed the light on the many parts of the industry. Music is important. Dance is important. Art is important. So take your seat, lights out, performers in place, as we present you with the Original Doll Podcast. Bonus episode, Torn. Don't you want my iconography? Don't you understand? Then follow me. Don't you want to aim for stars you see? Don't you want my iconography? In today's episode, we talk with Trina Rain about her top 10 hit, Torn, that would eventually be covered a year later by Natalie Imbruglia. Nothing's fine, I'm torn. I'm all out of faith. This is how I feel. I'm cold and I'm ashamed. Bound and broken on the floor. Here is Trina's story. How important was music to you early on? I think very. Uh, I think I started singing before I could even walk. Uh, it's always been uh, my DNA, singing and music. Um, my mom uh, thought I was going to be a dancer, which couldn't be f- further from the truth. <laughs> Because I was always dancing, you know, with my diapers and, you know, whenever I heard music, I started moving. Uh, But singing was definitely my thing. Um, And both my dad, uh, my American dad and my Norwegian mother are very musical people with with great voices, with great singing voices. Uh, And my grandmother on the mother's side also had a very beautiful voice, uh, but they never sort of pursued it uh, into a profession. They were always just doing it as a hobby. So I would be the first generation to to take it one step further and, and actually try to make a living from it. You know, from your your first, your, your debut album, it was like your voice was already harnessed as like a gift. Like it, it seemed as though it was a naturally talented aspect and skill. Yeah, well, I wasn't really schooled um, until I actually went through a really um, dramatic period in in the beginning of my career as a di- uh, as a solo singer where I lost my voice and not until then was when I actually started getting um, vocal classes and started learning it technically correct. Uh, but before uh, my debut as a solo artist, um, I did I was uh, the the front singer in what do you call it, a cover band, you know? So we were traveling around Norway um, and the singing, the hours were so long, you know? I would get off of my, I was in high school at the time, I would get off of school, 
uh, get into Oslo to the capital of Norway and meet the guys. And then we'd drive for, you know, like four or five hours to have a, a gig somewhere. And being in a cover band, you would play for like 45 minutes and then you would have a break of 15, 20 minutes. Then you'd play for another 45 minutes. And this would go on for like three or four times the same night, you know? So I guess I had a lot of stamina in my voice at the time. Um, and I loved singing, but I guess that when when I broke through as, as an artist, when, I, when my first album came out and became a success, um, people started expecting from me, you know, I started getting, um, what do you call it, uh, performance anxiety, because I thought everybody was expecting me to sing all the songs exactly the same way they were recorded in the studio, when you have a very um, protected uh, kind of space, and you can do it over again, and you know, you can tweak and, and do all that. But when you're live, and you try to repeat everything you did in the studio, it requires so much. And not having a, a schooled voice, um, I actually ended up losing my voice for a, for a minute there. How did you find that this is who I am, this is my identity and the artist I want to be? I think I'm still searching. <laughs> I don't know, I've just been singing forever. And you know, some days I wanna sing a rock song, other days I wanna be a soul singer. And then, you know, from time to time, country singer. Uh, I don't think I've ever wanted to be a jazz singer, but from my latest uh, release, the the song Mother, people have been accusing me of being a jazz singer, which is pretty funny. <laughs> and it's so, not the worst thing to be considered. <laughs> yeah, you know, if they, yeah, if I can fake that. <laughs> so, <laughs> I just, I just always thought there's only two kinds of, of music there's good music and there's bad music and I and I love to just play within that realm of everything I mean I don't want to have any limits to what I can do if I want to put a soul song together with a heavy rock song and a country song in the same concert I will and so then how did you go from studio singing you know being a studio singer to getting signed like what was that transition like how did that occur well, it's almost like one thing led to the other. Um, I was questioned uh, by one of the studio producers that I had been working with doing jingles and background songs, background singing. Um, if I could do background singing for a group that was uh, just uh, on the verge of re releasing their first album. And that was a hip hop group called WIP. So they asked me if I could be the singer in their band until they could find the the, the steady singer for them. And I said, sure, you know, uh, I'll sing for you. But, you know, my first priority is the cover band. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of laughing at myself, kicking myself because not being able to see that, hello, Trina, this is your this is your next step. You know, I didn't see it back then. So fortunately, I did do that. And that was my step because that's when um, I was sort of brought on to the to the big you know record company EMI and and was signed there. So that was kind of how I was discovered as an artist. And so, and so for those that don't know, and we're we're learning more and more about like the contracts and things like that. I think a lot of people nowadays are surprised when an artist can't go, hey, I released one album, now I'm gonna go make my own album or write and produce my own you know, music or whatever, that there's a lot of restrictions put on and mm -hmm. then we, you know, advances, things like that. So 
for you, how you know, I would feel like even as a 40 year old man, I would feel intimidated reading whatever that is. And I couldn't imagine being a teen just going, sure, you know what I mean? Like I definitely do not read the fine print on things. <laughs> so how was that? How did, how did that contract look to you and how did it, did it feel overwhelming? Yeah, it was definitely overwhelming. Um, at the time, I mean, I, I had a manager, my first manager, um, and uh, we're not on speaking terms, to say the least now. Uh, and, and I would say that back then, if, if the Me Too movement had been existing mm. uh, in the 90s, he would have been in trouble. So uh, enough said. But anyway, um, the first contract I signed was with him, my first manager. Uh, and I did see this, you know, sheet of all this, um, you know, lawyer talk stuff. I had no idea. Jargon. <laughs> yeah. So I looked at the contract and I asked him, you know, shouldn't we run this by a, a lawyer, you know, and he puts his arm around me, you know, and he says, oh, Trina, if you can't trust me on this, how are we going to work together? You know, so honey, you know, come just sign the deal and you'll be fine, you know. And if you don't, you know, I can ruin your career completely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so he used all the, all the, you know, male power and all this, you know, it was just very, very typical kind of story, like, uh, like you've heard so many times lately. Anyway, I signed the contract with him and uh, he took me to, um, to EMI records. Uh, and the record deal was, it had four options for records. So, you know, four album options. So uh, I had no idea what that meant. I thought, oh yeah, I'm secured for four more albums, <laughs> you know? Not really seeing that if you have a huge success on the first one, there's not even one line that says, then we re renegotiate this deal, you know? No, you're stuck with that deal for, for the next four albums. Mm -hmm. So um, fortunately, this was a, it turned out to be a bigger success than anyone would have expected. I had a song called Just Missed the Train that you may have heard in different versions. Uh, I know Kelly Clarkson, among others, has recorded it since. Um, and I had a huge success in Japan. And um, uh, for some reason, I can't really remember exactly how that happened. I started, well, I started making uh, album number two. That was about two years later because it took that much time to work with the first album. And uh, I was in Denmark working with a producer in Denmark. Uh, and he introduced me to a new manager. So that's how I kind of managed to get from EMI Norway and switch record companies to EMI Denmark. So I got out of the I was going to say, how does that, how does that work? How do they not say, nope, you're, you're, you're ours. Yes. Yeah. I think not, not sure exactly how that could happen, but um, I think that Norway didn't have the, self-confidence maybe as um, a worldwide record company sort of thing that, you know, we didn't have that confidence in Norwegian artists getting them worldwide, you know, in the same way that maybe Sweden or Denmark did. So I think that Denmark sort of had the upper hand. And since I stayed within the EMI system, it was easier. And was it with the first album or the second one where Japan 
played a huge part in that. The success. Yeah, the first, the first album is when Jap the Japanese uh, discovered me, uh, kind of in a strange way. We had the Olympics in Norway in 1994, which was right after I had released my first album with Just Missed the Train being number one in Norway for five weeks. It was in the charts. That's amazing. And everything, you know, was uh, people from all over the world visited Norway to see the Olympics. But then there were also press and media from from the countries that w were interested in other things than than the sports. So they discovered me, I guess, just from the fact that I was in the charge at the time. So then all of a sudden uh, we had, you know, when you when you release an album in Norway, um, you're all obviously dreaming about getting a hit in Norway. Um, and if you get a hit in Norway, then you start thinking about, oh, you know, that would have been fun if we could get a hit in Sweden or maybe England or Germany, you know, that would be kind of the way to dream. But Japan was like, where is that? <laughs> and the Japanese had started to import my album um, without me knowing about it. And they had passed 60,000 copies that they had imported directly to Japan before we had even considered releasing the album. So when we got to- And so there was really no, there was really no, like you would have known ahead of time if they were like, this is what we're doing. We're going to go to Japan. This is like, this was kind of yeah. happening without anyone really yeah. realizing it. They, it just started happening. And it's, I mean, that's like once in a lifetime that that will happen to anybody. Um, and we, I had no idea how big that was. Uh, I had no idea what was going on, how that happened. But 60,000 copies just went woof to Japan. And um, then we started considering releasing it, of course. So then I got in touch with uh, Toshiba EMI in Japan and had a great uh, collaboration with the people there. They, are, they were just amazing. They worked so hard in Japan. And what happened was I got to go to Japan. That was, it was, you know, I hadn't even had time to dream about that. And all of a sudden mm -hmm. I find myself in Japan as a singer, you know. I was about to say you go from like, where exactly is, how do I get to Japan? Yeah. And then you're like, oh, I have to go there now. <laughs> exactly. And we went there and I got there and I was like, I was treated like a, like a queen, you know, they treated me like I was something that I'm not, you know. And yeah. I think that, I think that a lot of people don't realize that you can have this huge, massive success in Japan and somebody in Pennsylvania could be like, who, but you're selling tens of thousands of copies of an album and they know who you are. And I believe this was around the time that you were almost on like, were you like number one in like 20 different radio markets or something? Like you, you it wasn't just one village somewhere that was like, oh, we like her. Yeah. This was like, you were expanding while, yeah, while was this was happening. Yeah, it was nationwide. We went to, we did a promo tour all over Japan. Uh, and of course, promotion. Um, and also the Japanese way of doing things is that they are much, much more efficient than we are. <laughs> so Japanese artists, they would go into the studio and record like 25 songs, and then they would release half of the songs the first half of the year. And if that's a success, they will just release the second half of the album the next half, six months, you know. I wasn't even near. I mean, I hadn't been to the studio at all since we recorded the first album. And, I and, uh, you, and you didn't even do 25 during that time, like even for the first album, correct? 
Yeah, no, no. I had only, I think I had only 10 songs on the first album. Mm-hmm. So I remember all my tours, all my concerts, they were filled up with cover songs because I had to have the length <laughs> of a concert, but I only had 10 songs, you know? <laughs> do you remember what some of those covers were that you did? Oh, I do. I do. And um, in fact, just lately, I've been um, thinking back on those days, thinking that a lot of those cover songs were really fun to do and people love them. And they, I, I got into the uh, Motown and the Stax catalog to find uh, repertoire, because I, I love that type of music. Well, and yeah. the thing is, I think that people, I think that the, the, the regular listener, I think that this is what, you know, me even as a, just a consumer and lover of music is, you know, I really got into what international music was, the global kind of market thing, when like Britney Spears was being released, because I was like, oh, her song is fun, I can dance to it. And then I'd find out Japan, they're like, oh, they added like four other songs on there. And I was like, wait, what? Why do they get other songs? And then I'm like, but how is she over there promoting her album? Like, I didn't realize because I wasn't in that that world that you're not just going there performing one concert, you're doing radio, you're doing, you know, performances, you're on jets going to Japan. How did you maintain that? And also, how did you keep it fun? How did you keep your voice? And how did you keep your... um, your esteem up, your energy up? Yeah, those are great questions. Uh, and I think that um, the answer to that is, first of all, I was in my 20s. <laughs> that helps. Uh, also, um, everything was new. Um, and, um, you know, my mother taught me to be a good girl. So if you're told to do something, you do it, you know. <laughs> um, <clears throat> how to keep the fun in it, it was Time, from time to time difficult it really was I can look back and I can think that I mean I remember one time I had this this promotion day where I did you know I, I had a guitar player along with me so we had to get up really early in the morning and get on the radio show and sing you know my next single was torn uh, you might have heard it with other singers like Natalie Brulia. she recorded it two years after me uh, but, you know, at 7 a.m. in the morning, you get up, your eyes are hardly open and you've been through your makeup artist and everybody's just totally jet lagged and tired. <laughs> and you sing torn, you know, with trying to <laughs> pour your heart out, but not really. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I remember just, you know, getting off the plane. Japanese have such a high work ethic. You would not believe it until you've been there. You don't know how hard those guys work. So you get off the plane and you, you're presented with a schedule that just starts now. <laughs> you're not even allowed to go to the hotel room to change almost. You know, you just start working right away. And I remember sitting in an inter- interview and thinking, I'm falling asleep now. There's no way I can stay awake and how can I hide it? <laughs> and there was just interviews, interviews, back to back to back to back. And I had my guitar player and every, occasionally we had to sing the song again and again, you know. So I said, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and my promotion guy was looking at me like, you, you know, we don't really have um, time for that, you know? You should have requested that time earlier. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, we don't really have time for you to go to the bathroom. Um, we could skip lunch, you know? <laughs> like, okay, whatever, we'll skip lunch. I don't care. I just have to be by myself for a minute. So I went to the bathroom and I put my head against the wall and I fell asleep. Oh no. <laughs> oh 
Oh my goodness. So, but I had to, I had to have a break. So that's what jet lag does, you know? The big push in the 90s through the, the early 2000s by the album. There were some times mm -hmm. where it was singles, but I, I, I know even in the US they had it where the record labels were really like, no, we're making a lot of money off these albums. We'll release maybe a single here and there, but the album is what you're going to buy because that they profit from more than exactly. a $1.99, $2.99 single or whatever, exactly. like $4.29, whatever it was at the time. But for exactly. you then... The single, the oh, singles are just a, a business card, you know, and they still are, you know, but the, the, the difference is people are not buying albums anymore. <laughs> now, as once again, a consumer of music, you hear albums and it just sounds like a bunch of singles that were thrown to see, oh, do they work? There's no consistency. I know. So for you then on the debut, was there a point where they said, okay, we're not going to promote any more singles. We're not going to promote any more science radio because you have to hop on to the next one. How much time was given after the promo was done for the first album to the second album, even being started in the studio? You know, I kind—I of, feel that there was not really a strategy there in the bottom because nobody had expected this type of success. And in the midst of all, all of this that happened, I was trying to get away from my manager at the time. I worked really hard to get out of that contract that I was stupid enough to sign without going through a lawyer because there was no option of getting out, you know. So I had uh, parallel to all of this that was happening. Fortunately, I managed to, to um, establish that there was, you know, I'm not going to work with this manager uh, from the time that I start going to Japan, which fortunate, I mean, fortunately, I got rid of him right before then. But I was pretty much without a manager for a while there. Um, and then I found this Danish management manager that I worked with for years and years. Um, and um, he knew how to deal with the success, but he didn't really know how to continue a success or continue to build a success. And I certainly didn't. So it was a little mm, kind of by chance, I think that, you know, I was thinking, so I'm finished working with my first album. Now, what do I do? <laughs> you know, oh, maybe I should make a new album, you know, and the Japanese were already on my, my um, case going, you know, we need more music. We need more music. So after the second album, they started releasing the best of albums from me in Japan. <laughs> It's just because they have to have something new, you know? And I did record one song that was only meant for the Japanese market at the time. It's um, a cover song, I think. Janis Joplin did it. It's, but it's even older than that. It's, I um, wonder if it's like a Motown song, but it's called Cry Baby. Cry Baby. I think that was done, but maybe Kiki D did a version of it. I think Janis Joplin did it. And... And there was also a band that did it, but that's one of my, you know, cover song recordings that just was just for the Japanese market. Did you get a say in picking that or did the label say this is who like publishing and, and I'll, I, in future episodes, I really go into like what publishing is and rights and things like that. Yeah. Did you have a say in what was the, what the song would be or did they say these are your options, pick one? No, I think that we were working together on that and I was open to suggestions because I wanted to have another song kind of like Stay With Me Baby that was on my first record. Um, 
the the funny thing is I never really wanted to record Just Miss the Train, which was the song Ooh, that started my my career. I mean, had I not done that, I wouldn't have been talking to you probably. I think it was on uh, Kelly Clarkson's first album, I think, The Thankful. I think yeah. that was her first. <laughs> yeah, it's a great song. It is. And, you know, we I was uh, introduced to that song from my first producer. His name is Ole Evenrud. Uh, and he uh, he was like really he really wanted me to record that song, and I had spent all of my years trying to develop this powerhouse kind of voice, you know, with I've got the power, and the, I didn't want to do just miss the train because he wanted me to to make my voice sound like a little girl who couldn't really sing, you know, like go into the studio and say, oh, oh baby, you know, like making it really tiny and yeah. nothing. <laughs> yeah. I was like, uh, I don't want to do that. I, you know, don't you know who I am? You know, <laughs> I was in a hip hop group. I was in a hip hop group. I could do better than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of my idols is like Aretha Franklin. She would never go, roll oh, baby. <laughs> so then he found this other song, Stay With Me Baby, which is much more of a kind of a soul song that also done by Kiki D and Bette Midler did one. Yep version in the rose of that song a very different type um that's more the type of music that i wanted to do back then so it was kind of a a deal that we okay if i if i'm gonna do just miss the train i also want to do stay with me baby so then yeah okay we agree. give and take give and take yeah right give and take so when when we got over cry baby it was kind of it was almost like the same song and i wonder if it's the same songwriters too on that cry baby how much control would you say you had or lost between the first album to the second and to the third? It's hard to say. I mean, I'm a stubborn cookie, so... Uh, love it, I love it. Having, yeah, we had some pretty harsh discussion, I remember, with uh, with the A&R guy from, from Denmark. Um, uh, I, rem I remember pulling his hair out one time in the studio, and he probably deserved it. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> But we we landed and we we ended up with the with the records that I had. Um, I think the biggest problem was the producer the producer that I was working or trying to work with in LA. Um, that didn't work out at all. Um, he was was not being very nice to me, and he kept um, down prioritizing me to other uh, clients, other artists and bands that he was working with. Um, we had made a a deal with him that uh, he was going to work with me starting two weeks from now, you know, and I had moved to LA. Uh, and all of a sudden, something came in the way. He started working with Rod Stewart. Uh, and then he started working with the course. Remember the course from yeah, uh, Breathless? Yeah. And, and of course, they were those Irish, were, I believe, right? They were the Irish, Irish band. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Irish siblings, right? And uh, they were obviously much bigger than, than I was um, from a point of selling records, you know. So he kept down prioritizing me, down prioritizing me. So I was staying in LA for much, much longer than I was supposed to, n not having much to do, you know. So I started looking up um, other songwriters, other producers. I started working little by little. I started working with other producers just to get a record done, you know. 
so I feel when I look back at the time, <clears throat> I, I feel like it was a big mess. And it's just amazing that I even managed to, to put that record together uh, finally in the end. Uh, but when it came out, I was so tired of working with, you know, the L.A. crowd. Um, I just wanted to get the album out and start with a clean slate and just move on, you know, which I did. So after that, I, I actually went back from, um, from EMI Denmark, from EMI Medley to EMI Norway. And I started working with EMI Norway again. So almost like then, a full circle moment. Yeah, a full circle. But at that time, um, you know, Britney Spears had broken through. Um, and I was I was obsolete, you know. Mm -hmm. I was 30 years old at the time and I was obsolete. So uh it was very, very difficult for me to continue my career at the time, and I pretty much gave up at some point and I moved back to the States to live with my dad and and just try to get my head on something else, you know, focus on something else other than music, because I didn't even know if I wanted to continue doing music at the time. I, uh, I thought, well, nobody knows me in the States, <clears throat> so at least I can go to the States and get a breather uh, as an artist, and I can just try to, you know, see if I can find that urge again that I've had since I was a little kid. All I wanted to do when I was little was to be on the stage and sing, you know? And obviously, it didn't take very long before I, I started getting the urge again, you know, one, wanting to be on a stage, wanting to perform, wanting to have music in my life. So I, I actually, I had to make a living somehow. So I, I uh, got a job as a limo driver. I had a friend over there in California who knew, who, who he was working for a company that used limos all the time as a way of getting to where they needed to go for work, right? So that's how I got the job. And uh, it was very strange because I was driving around with people, meeting people in the industry that I would have died to meet when I was active as an artist, mm -hmm. you know? But I had signed a deal with my boss at the limo company that I was not allowed to talk about myself or, you know, try and give them demos or anything like that. So. I just had to keep, you know, quiet or don't speak unless you're speak spoken to. Mm -hmm. was one of the rules. So I remember being, um, you know, Patrick Monahan from Train, his the singer. I was his his driver and his family's driver whenever he was traveling, for whatever, you know. Oh and at the time, goodness. I had sold more than a million records, <laughs> and I was like, I'm driving this limo. I'm driving other artists around. In, in Japan, I was driving a limo mm -hmm. in the back seat, you know, <laughs> I was a passenger. So that was a few very hum humbling years, I would mm -hmm. say, very, you know, a, a good learning process and, and a good way to, um, you know, think about what I really want to do and why and, and how I should do it, how I should go by. It was a kind of a, a time of planning, I think. And then I moved down to LA and I continued as a limo driver and I became a rep for a new limo company. I was a veteran at the time <laughs> in the business. And I met people like Quincy Jones, Clive Davis, you know, I, I met really major um, people in the business that I couldn't really talk to. 
But actually, what did happen was um, somehow I also, the day before I had something to do with Quincy Jones through my job, I had met uh, uh, Dr. Dean Ornish. He's probably a famous guy in the States. So we got to talking, we were standing on the sidewalk talking, and he says, so what do you do when you're not uh, repping, you know, like a limo driver rep? And I said, well, uh, I'm actually, I'm a singer. I know this sounds like a cliche here in LA that I'm actually something much more interesting than what you see, you know? But the truth is uh, I used to make a living from being an artist full time. Oh, you know, and, uh, and then he says, well, um, I have a friend who, who might be interested, you know, and, and I was like, oh, okay. So, so he got my phone number. You never know, you know, right? And the friend he was talking about was no less than Quincy Jones. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah. yeah. And the next day, I mean, this is destiny in a nutshell. The next day, Quincy Jones himself came off a plane, VIP uh, client of this limo company that I was working for. So, and then it became my assignment to take care of Quincy Jones. <laughs> and he, I was walking in front of him because he was in a wheelchair. Just, I think he had some problem with his legs. So he was in a wheelchair and I was walking in front of him. Uh, and he wanted my phone number. And I thought, well, what do you say if you're an artist and Quincy Jones asks for your phone number, you give it to him, right? <laughs> so I gave him my phone number <laughs> and just, I can't remember how long later, maybe a week later or something, he calls me up and he says, he's been talking to Dean Ornish and I know you're a singer and you know, you have records. Would you send me your records? I just about died, you know? Casey so Jones is asking you to send him your music. Your records. Yeah. So I did, obviously I signed them and I wrote him a little note and thank you. I'm so honored here. I, my records, I hope you like them and feel free to call me, you know? And he did. So he called me and he asked me if I wanted to have dinner with him. And I'm like, okay, I'm climbing. I'm on my way to cloud nine right now. <laughs> you know. So of course I wanted to have dinner with him. So he invited me to his house in Beverly Hills and I drove up there, um, you know, and it was just like, you know, you would never, I, I didn't really, I wasn't prepared that he would have servants, but he did. He had, he had a, a person who cooked, who, a chef, and he had an assistant, and you know, there were people everywhere. So I got there and, and they, they he served um, a dinner, and he had another friend couple there at the same time, and he insisted on listening to my music the whole night. Then the disappointment. <laughs> then he starts trying to hold my hand, and oh, no. he starts to like, you know, doing his thing, you know, and I'm thinking, Okay, so he's not really interested in my music at all. It's completely different. Oh, <laughs> so, no. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, just knowing that Quincy Jones has heard my music and enjoyed it is um, an honor to me. But, mm -hmm. you know, I left there and I thought, okay, so that's what he wanted. <laughs> oh, man. And that's, yeah. and it's so, it's so hard and difficult when you hear these things because you hear these people talk about their idols or people they looked up to. And then you hear that he, you know, it's no different than, some, you know, the manager or, you know what I mean? Like it's stuff yeah. like that where it's, 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 it's bizarre. So then 
Did he know now? And, and what I want to get to, because I don't want to take up too much of your time. I am loving this conversation. Your story is like, um, <laughs> but I want to get to, you know, did he, did he like go, oh, I know Torn. You know, I knew that it was written back in like 1991 with like um, Preven, uh, I forgot. Annie Preven? Yes. Where yeah. I knew that it was, it had gone through different iterations and it had been, uh, I think it was a Danish artist had covered or did their yeah, version Liz, called like yeah, Burns? Liz, Liz Sorensen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Liz Sorensen, yes, I know her. Yeah. Oh, do you really? Yes, I know her. We had the same management in Denmark. Okay, She's I, a real sweetheart. Well, I, I was wondering, because the thing is, when I heard that and I heard, you know, Edna Swap's version everything, I was like, oh, I liked your version and not against theirs, but it was more into what my ears liked at the time. Yeah, Edna Swap is sort of an underground type version of it. Yes. When I had heard it and then I was like, oh, I heard, you know, Natalie and Brulia's version. I was like, wait, this is just like, and I didn't know, I didn't know. I'm like, Trini, Trina, Tr I, I was like, <laughs> this is her. This is yeah. her version. Because I know. this version was different than the Sorensen version, different than, you know, Edna Swap. So mm -hmm. let's, let's go to the, to the beginning of it. How did that song become part of your album? Um, that was my A&R guy who had also been working with Liz Sorensen in Denmark. It's the same guy. So, you know, we're all a big family here. <laughs> and he knew, um, he knew, uh, Scott Cutler, uh, who was one of the writers on Torn. There's three writers on Torn. There's Scott Cutler, Andy Praven, and Phil Thornally from, from London, Phil. And Phil had been, I think he'd been a bass player in The Cure for a minute that band. So, As a teenager, I believe, he was young when he was with The Cure. Yeah, probably. So um, that's how I got to know about Torn through my A&R guy. Um, and I liked the song a lot. And also knowing the history that I had with Just Missed the Train, which is also written by Scott Cutler and um, Daniel Brisbois, um, I thought, well, I might as well give this song an extra listen. And, and I thought I liked the song a lot. I'd, I hadn't heard Liz Sernsen's version at the time because her version is in Dan Danish. But when I heard Torn there, that was more of a, it was more of a pop arrangement than the Edna Swap arrangement. And so, so this, was a, this was a demo that they did to have somebody yes, else cut it. it. Okay. And I think that was, I think it was Annie Praven actually singing the demo uh and uh phil Farnally had produced it um so we managed to get the track sent over the way that phil had already produced it and then i went to norway to put the vocals on there and we were struggling with the song i could not understand what was so difficult about getting the song to sound right you know uh, and after trying a lot of different things and approaches, uh, I just realized, you know what? It's just in the wrong key. <laughs> so we had to up it a key. So I think we upped it in uh, one full note or something. Um, and that's when it just clicked. So, so now the song was perfect for my voice. And I love the, the, um, the expression of it. I love the lyrics in it. And, and I do, I really enjoy uh, Anna Praven's lyrics. The way she writes lyrics is kind of mystical and still easy to grasp, you know? And it, she, she uses metaphors and, and tells a story uh, in a way that it's, it's fun to perform it, you know? 
Uh, I love her pictures. So she was with Scott Cutler at the time. And um, so I ended up recording Torn and uh, that became kind of the flagship on my next, on my second album. You know, that's how what deep, made. How deep into the, the, the second album did you cut this song? Like, was it towards the beginning or towards the end? Oh, I can't remember when, really. It's so long ago, but probably... We had probably started recording, but it was probably one of the first songs we landed as this is going to be uh, on the record, you know. And the state, all those. well, and the state I'm in was already going to no, be on the album? No, that came later. That came later. Okay. Uh, oh, the state I'm in. That's, that's they're actually both, They're both the, the Edna Swap songs. Yeah, they're both the same. They are. they are, and they are much more pop. Uh, versions from in you know my record than than Edna Swap had interpreted them, but yeah, they are Edna Swap songs, and that's when I tore the hair from my A and R producer out uh, in the studio on the state I'm in <laughs> because we had recorded the whole day um, other songs for my second second album in the studio in Denmark. And I was so tired, and then he comes out with this cassette. Remember cassette? Yeah, oh yes. <laughs> with the state I'm in, and uh, we, it was the track for the state I'm in. And even back then, if we used cassette cassette tapes, they would still go a little like this, you know. On the you know, even when you played them, the the speed wouldn't be accurate the whole time. Mm -hmm. So he just wanted me to try the song, just quickly try the song, see if it fits you, see if you like it, you know. So I was like this with um, the lyrics and I had a, I remember having a sure mic in the control room in the studio and I was just listening to the track over the speakers. So we had done nothing to create any particular good sound or anything. And it was my first take ever. I didn't know the lyrics. I didn't know what the song was about. I was just trying to mimic whatever Annie Praven had done, you know? <laughs> so, you know, so I'm like in there, um, I'm circling around the sun, hoping for change. <laughs> you know? Grabbing and, that paper back and forth. <laughs> you know what I mean? And stop and go, stop and go. So at the end, I had recorded um, the whole song, and, um, and um, my A&R guy loved it. He said, that's exactly the recording. That's the recording. We're not doing anything <laughs> with the recording. That's the attitude. That's the approach. I mean, you got everything right oh, on the no. first take. And I was like, ah, no, I did not. <laughs> you know, there is no way this is going to be good enough for a record. <laughs> oh, so we had, I mean, that was probably my biggest tug of war ever in the studio with an A&R guy. He insisted that that was the recording. And I was like, no way ever is that going to be on the record. So we, we ended up along, you know, make a long story short, we ended up with a compromise that I was actually doubling what I did the, the, on the first take. I was doubling that in the studio. And he, oh he put me through hell to, to end up with that solution. So the recording of that song was very, very different from anything I've ever done before. <laughs> well, it's one of those things you think, okay, I'm just gonna do a rough cut dry run of this. Let me just figure this out. Um, yeah. There's in in one of the previous episodes I, I talked about Rupert Holmes who did the Escape the Pina Colada song. If you like Pina Coladas, mm -hmm. he talked about he went in the studio and time was limited. The label was like, you need an upbeat song. So he's like, fine. He knew the track he already had in mind. He's like, just press play, and he had his lyrics ready. 
And he's just like, uh, the funky syllable things I did was because I was trying to rush to hit before, you know, the next eight count went in. So he said, we ended up just keeping that, that version of it where he's like, that's not the way I would have done it. But yeah, that's right. What we ended up with. So it, it, it's funny to think of it that way that like, you were like, oh, I'm just going to, fine, I'll run through this, see how it sounds. Because you, as yeah. somebody who has the studio singer experience knows, wait, 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 you don't just take that first, that first run through no. of it. No, I mean, I know what it was after, but I, at the time I was such a perfectionist and I wanted it to be polished and perfect and the sound would be much, I mean, and he was using uh, arguments like, you know how Bjork records all of her albums? She does it just like that. Her hand, handheld sure mic in the control room, just listening through the speakers. So, so Torn is complete. You, you put it, you get ready for the album. Uh, when the album was done, did you already know what singles you wanted to release or what were contenders? Uh, for those, like, the, the listeners that don't know, like, because I feel like it's not, they're not like, uh, we're just going to figure out last minute that there's a whole, especially during the 90s, a plan saying, we're going to lead off with this, we're going to yeah. give it some time, release the album, and release a secondary single to further promote the album. Yeah, yeah. There was definitely a plan. Uh, let me see, I have to look at the album titles to know, but Torn was the first single. Um, then I think we released uh, The State I'm In as the second single in Norway anyways. Uh, and after that, no, wait a minute, Do You Really Want to Leave Me This Way was also a single from that record. Um, and I also wonder if we released Never Far Away as one of the singles. Um, that's a song that I wrote to my grandmother who is now passed away, but back then she was alive and I missed her. So that's one of my first like major uh, lyrics <laughs> that um, I wrote. Well, and the thing is, because I feel like there were four singles that you released and, and it was like Cutler, non-Cutler, Cutler. Cut, like it was the, do you know what I mean? Like for those, like yeah. the Edna Swap back and forth. Yeah, um, yeah. But so how soon after you completed Torn did you know, okay, we're going with this? Because I assume then they went, let's do the second single. Then they said, okay, let's try to go back to the sound. You know what I mean? To say, here's the same songwriters yeah. or... Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I guess Scott Cutler had a lot of hits back then. So we probably assumed that he would be a safe bet to, to choose one of his songs. And Torn kind of lend itself to... That had already been a hit in Denmark, even if it wasn't Den Danish. So we already knew that, you know, a hit is a hit. So we we were pretty sure about Torn. Um, I can't remember. The Do You Really Want to Leave Me This Way was much more of a pop song from Denmark. Um, and that kind of rolled on the radio for a while, too. A, lo a lot of people remember it when I play it in my concerts now. They still remember that song. Uh, and then the state I'm in was a little bit more kind of mystic, mysterious. It was a little, a little more kind of vague, I think, for people to catch it. So you released, so the four singles were released, and that was about 96, 96 that <laughs> these songs were out. Then 1997, Torn gets re-released, like, or gets released, but and for me, and you don't have to say anything, for me, the Natalie Abrulia one sounds almost identical to yours. And yeah. yours sounds vastly different than all the predecessors. Like mm -hmm. the the bringing it up that one and a quarter that that's like that was like your sweet spot too. Like for for singing for me, I was like, oh, I love her voice. Did mm -hmm. you know that that was being sent somewhere else, or did you find out with the rest of the world? 
No, I found out with the rest of the world and my manager at the time called me from Denmark. I was in LA at the time and I had finished working with the second album. I had been all of, all around Europe and Japan and I've done my promo and my tours. So I was starting to focus on my third album in LA when this happened. And um, uh, I, I thought, well, that's a compliment, you know? She records uh, almost an identical version of the song that I recorded. She could have done anything with it, but she, she, you know, decided to do almost exactly what I did. So thank you, you know? And the other reason why it probably ended up like that, only two years more fresh, you know, kind of without the loops and without the very 90 feeling that, that they had in the beginning of the half 90s, um, it, it, they had removed the loops, they had shortened it up a little bit and taken away some of the mid middle eight thing in the middle there. Um, but it was still uh, produced by Phil Farnelli, one of the writers, one of the writers. you know. So um, I understand how that could happen because as a producer and a, and a songwriter, he's not going to start interpreting his own song in a completely different way only two years later. This is how he interpreted his song. So so I understand how Natalie could end up with a version, but my manager called me and said, um, EMI is considering releasing it in, in uh, England and in, in all the places where Natalie's version is now released. And I thought, well, why didn't they think of that before, you know, when I was doing my promo? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was just told by, by the record company workers that, you know how that happens, they get a hundred singles a week and they just put the they put your single at the bottom of the stack and they never hear it and they never really realize what they miss and you know it's they're only people so whatever so um and natalie also had rca in her in her back which was a much much bigger record company at the time plus she was a world famous um actress, uh, actress. yeah from neighbors so she had a lot more focus on her at the time so I was ready. I had packed my suitcase to go to England to try to to do the interviews and everything that was required of me because it, she had made a buoy. <laughs> Natalie had been interviewed by um, a very famous uh, show host in England. Uh, and, the, and the backstory is that he had invited her out for a date and he was never turned down and Natalie had turned him down. So he wanted to get her back. So he had said to Natalie, you know, uh, I really love a lot of your lyrics because she does write a lot of songs, mm -hmm. you know. And, uh, and then he says, uh, particularly, I really like um, that lyric where you say lying naked on the ground. And Natalie just says, oh, thank you. <laughs> uh... And so, you know, kind of takes the, the glory for that. And instead of kind of saying who wrote it. And that's when he says, oh, she's trying to steal Torn. Uh, she's claiming that she wrote a song that she didn't. And he had the entire media <laughs> kind of hound her about that. Did you, did you take it as that or? No, I know how the press works. So I felt sorry for her, really. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, it kind of gave me another round of fame on that song that I had finished working with. Um, so, um, I, uh, I was ready to go to England and back then they had MTV. So they had found my version of it saying, this is the original, you know, which it wasn't, <laughs> but that's what they said. 
everybody bought into it. Even Norwegian people bought into it thinking that it's my song, you know, mm -hmm. what are, what's she doing? You know, that's your song. And, and in, uh, on MTV, they had put our, our videos back to back with this phone number where you could vote. Oh, no. for the <laughs> and of course, with that backdrop, she, she was going to lose big time because, because of the story, you know? Oh, she's stolen her song. Of course, that other Taking video. Taking credit for somebody else's work. Yeah, yeah. She just had the shitty end of the stick, to say mm -hmm. the least. But at the end of the day, I mean, they worked so hard to, to shut that story down from her team, RCA, her management and everything. And then EMI backed off. I don't know what happened, but they decided not to release my song in, in England. And so it kind of just went over mm -hmm. <laughs> and Natalie broke in in the states and you know worldwide and you know the rest is history so much later um I was back in LA and I was in a party I was actually uh at the uh the final of, of the American Idol uh and I was sitting next to Kelly Clarkson <laughs> can you believe that uh, and I didn't really know who Kelly Clarkson was because I'd been so up in my limo driving at the time. So I didn't really, I, I didn't know. And that was also the first time I recorded Just Missed the Train. I was about to say the train was on. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so before. And then, so that the uh, American Idol was there and um, Kelly Clarkson was, was in there? the audience. I was sitting next to her, you know. And, and I met the, and the after party was at a sky bar somewhere on Sunset Strip. Um, and we were up there and I got to talk to this guy um, uh, who was talking. He was from England and he was talking a lot about the business and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and he, was, uh, he was talking about Natalie and Brulia. So I realized this is Natalie and Brulia's manager. <laughs> and, and I said... Oh, that's interesting. I said, you know, my name is Trina Rain. I don't know if you've heard about me, but I also recorded Torn. And he just, he was so startled. He was like, what? What did you say it was? <laughs> he had spent an entire year trying to <laughs> shut <me> up. <laughs> out, of, out of sight, out of mind, out of sight. And yes, there he is yes, a year. So he was so baffled by that. And I was like, okay, I don't know. I just, you know, congratulations. You, you did it. When an album gets released, you, it, per your contract, let's say, make X amount per album sold, right? Like it's whatever that amount is. Um, when a single gets released, you as the artist, not the writer producer, you get still paid off of a percentage of your single of it. Like, how does that, how does that work? Well, uh, if you're signed to a record company, you have royalties, you know, that you've already um, made, you've signed a contract with a royalty and it's normally, it's a royalty that, it, that, it, that um, it's kind of a step that if you sell this many records, you'll make this amount, this percentage of the PPD, the published price to dealer. I mean, we don't even operate with words like that anymore because nobody buys the physical album anymore. Um, and then if you sell another, you know, 10,000 or whatever, then, you know, your, your um, royalty rate increases and it's kind of like a three-step thing. 
uh, you will get paid for that as as the artist. And if you've also written the songs, obviously you will get the credits for the the publishing. Um, but if you if you haven't, that goes back to the writers. Um, so you know that's how it used to work. <laughs> now uh, now we have Spotify, and you don't really make anything <laughs> unless you're played a million times. <laughs> let's let's fast forward. So after the limo driving everything, um, you picked up music and there was another greatest hits or very best uh, sort of thing, correct? Like, yeah. I swear, I feel like at, at, at a point you and a few other artists have had it where it's like, it feels like there are more greatest hits albums than there were yeah. studio albums. Oh yeah, if you look at Japan, they, I don't know how many, how many they've released and compilations and the best of them and the greatest and whatnot, <laughs> it's crazy. And do, you, do you profit off of any of those or just the ones that you're, you're, you've written the songs for or you know that sort of thing well yeah you do get a profit off the the greatest hits album when people buy them but you know already back then it was a, a very um a falling market for for the physical albums so yeah it didn't make me rich to say the least <laughs> but uh, it was i think it was their way of keeping my career kind of going sort of semi-current i had a, a couple of new tracks on that greatest hits album that I made in LA actually. Um, but what happened was I was a limo driver. I was working as a rep for this limo company. I was working there and I was driving my car going down to LAX where I was my office, LAX. Imagine spending every day at LAX <laughs> with all the pollution and all the, oh my gosh. So <laughs> I was driving commute traffic, you know, typical LA and I was thinking, God, there has got to be a, a different plan for my life than this. I mean, this cannot possibly be what you meant for me to do, you know, end up like this, you know, seriously, please show me a way out. Two days later, my phone rings. Somebody's calling me from Norway. It's a producer, uh, a theater producer. I've never heard about him before, but for some reason he decided that he wanted me to be in one of his shows in Norway. It was supposed to just last for, for four weeks or something. And then there was a two week rehearsal time before that. And I thought, okay, that's the answer I need from God. You know, that's what he wants me to do. Landed in Norway on the uh, Norwegian airport. I was picked up by a limo. That's something the, the record company did because they had heard that I was coming back to be on stage again. And that's when they got the idea about the greatest hits album. So, yeah. So they wanted to kind of, you know, be along for the ride kind of thing that I was coming back. I was going to be in the press and media again. Here she is. This is kind of a comeback thing. So they released that and, and uh, that was kind of my way back into the music business and the entertainment business. So for, for four years, I was on the stage doing various um, setups with on the theater scene, doing, you know, singing cover songs, being in kind of a, not really a musical, but still being kind of a, uh, an actress as, as well as a singer, being myself, but still having an act. Um, and, and then I met my husband in 2008 and he was like, what are you doing? Not playing your own music. You know, you should be on stage doing your music. Come on. You know, finally in 2010, I was able to, to, um, to, con to produce and make my own first album, you know, in, t in 12 years. <laughs> and was that so independent? 
Well, yeah, I own like a distributor sort of thing. Yeah, it was a distributor's license agreement. So I own the from ever from all the records that that have been released since 2010. I own I own the uh, master tapes. And how important so, is that to own the masters? Very, I mean, that is you cannot you you don't understand how important that is until you've had a success. I wanted to interrupt this episode a little bit to uh, give you a background for those that don't know. Now, just you know. I'm going to give you a general term, just the, the most generic way of saying this. So uh, what is a master recording? Well, it's the, the final version of the record. It's it's the, the version that ultimately gets sent to streaming or physical copies. And legally speaking, the person who owns the master recording, well, they have control over the financial profits from the recording. You see, usually when artists start uh, in the, the recording industry, in their contract, an artist signs over master rights of the recordings, and then the label gives them an advance, some money to start their career, uh, in addition with a percentage of royalties uh, for their recordings in the future. Now, the artist could use the advance to work with other producers, choreographers, songwriters. Uh, they could use it to make music videos, to tour, promo, things like that. A lot of people don't realize, uh, and TLC and a few other artists have talked openly about the fact that when you make these music videos, most of the time, unless you're using sponsored and branding, it's coming out of the artist's pocket themselves. So what happens is the artist usually has to pay back that advance. And once they do, and the hope is that the artist makes enough money to cover that. Uh, when the artist does, in fact, pay back their advance, then the artist can start collecting on their royalties from their recordings. Additionally, by paying back your advance, you do not get those rights back. Those are with the label, and there's a certain amount of years you can take to earn them back or pay them back. Uh, Mariah Carey talked about how somebody early on in her career said, here's $5,000 and we'll take all of your master recordings. She was smart. She said no, so she owns it. Uh, but you'd actually be surprised at how many artists do not own their master recordings. Uh, some don't really care. Uh, others do care. It's a, it's a sake of ownership and and keeping your art. I also talked about the universal fire uh, that allegedly uh, caused the destruction of 500,000 master copies with artists from Sting to Brian Adams, Pussycat Dolls, Joni Mitchell, Sonny and Cher, uh, and actually a deep dive into that in a future episode as well. So now back to our interview. Your, because your first three albums, I'm assuming you don't have the masters of? No, I don't. And I have tried, um, I have asked if I can buy them back and they're just like, nope, end of discussion. <laughs> they don't sell masters. Sorry, you know, very annoying, but you know, they're in the right. So I think it's just frustrating because as long as they are, they are on the rights of the masters, nobody's working with them. Nobody's doing anything to my back catalog. I can't do anything and they're not doing anything. And EMI doesn't exist anymore. You know, it's been bought up by this and that and the other. And now I think they ended up being Sony or uh, Warner or something. I don't mm -hmm. even know where to, who to call, you know. It's, well, and that's a huge part of it. We're in going yeah. with, with all this. And, and I've been fortunate enough to work with some of the publishing places that allow us on the podcast to play certain songs because, you know, we have a contract with them. But it's so bizarre to think a lot of artists are like, I think it was Sheryl Crow in the past year had done an interview where she said, you know, I don't even know where my masters are because this company was sold to this company was sold to this company. How do we support your current music? And also, how do we 
make it so that it's beneficial to you to purchase, stream, do whatever with your old music. Because this is something that I haven't been able to ask, you know, many yeah. people because a lot of people have they're presently under a record label that's like oh go through you know this like yeah. rca is leaning on their back saying tell you know what i mean and it's yeah. so no, how can know, we i, I really uh, I, I really appreciate it when people play from my back catalog of course i do i think that's a big compliment that they still remember my first songs you know it's almost been 30 years now uh, but uh, if they want to keep me alive, <laughs> they would play my current music and playlist it, you know, share their playlists and just make sure it gets streamed. That's how to support artists these days. Would you be able to put a live version of Torn Out in which uh, yeah. it would... Okay. Yeah, I, I could do that. I think that there was a grace time of maybe six months or maybe three years, I'm not sure, but it's been that time anyway. So. Now I, I would be able to record all of my songs again, but I don't really see the reason why. I, I think sure. people would like the original, the original young voice that I had, the original sounds, everything. So I'd rather spend my time um, recording new music. You so know? Joy and, and Mother, and then you have something coming up, cover album. What, what, what sort of thing do you have in the mix? Because right now, like I said, Joy, I'm gonna tell everyone I know, download it, stream it, YouTube, like the video, you know, you have the videos and everything. It's, it's so good. And it's, I always say, I hate when I compare female artists to female artists. So I always say like, Joy fits in perfectly as a companion to Pocket Full of Sunshine, Natasha Bedingfield. You oh know, yeah, yeah. These, these songs that you could just put on and you just smile and legitimately Joy brings <laughs> me joy. Yeah. Um, so how did that, how did that come about this this session of these two songs and whatever else you have coming up well um i i uh, was very fortunate to i have a friend in the music business here is a colleague of me um and he has uh friends from nashville that they were coming to norway last year in november and uh, he asked me if i was available to write with them and because they were coming to norway to work with norwegian artists and they had one day uh, to spare. And he said, these guys are really up and coming. Uh, this is probably the last chance we have to work with them without pay without paying uh, an arm and a leg. Um, and I thought, well, I should just go for it, even if my schedule was pretty much black, <laughs> because November is the, the month that I usually prepare for my Christmas tour, my annual Christmas tour. So I usually have no time for anything other than that. But something told me, you know, yeah, do this. So, so I met up with them. It was just a week before my, uh, my uh, pre-production on the, on the Christmas tour. I met up with them in the studio in Norway. And here's the, the secret, you know, having so much to do, um, I had not had time to prepare for that studio session to, in order to tell them what kind of music I would like to try and create. So they just asked me, what kind of music do you like, you know? And I had been pondering, like I was saying earlier, about all the songs, all the cover songs that I had to play in my early days, because I only had 10 songs on my first record. So I said, you know, I used to do this one song by Mavis Staples, um, and it's called Get Your House in Order, and I think she did that with Prince. Can't believe it's that old already, but I used to do that song back in when I played concerts in Norway and Japan. 
and I, I was not able to find it on Spotify. For some reason, it's not there. So we really had to Google it and try and find it before we, and when we found it and they heard what kind of song it was, it's really an up-tempo funk song, you know? They were like, oh yeah, let's do funk, you know, cool, you know? And so he just starts, this is David Tulin, uh, he's the producer, he just starts programming stuff and he's like, in 10 minutes, he's got something really interesting going. Now we're doing something new, you know? And the lyricist, uh, Ryan Shirley, she started writing and we were talking a little bit about how people are always, you know, caught up on their screens. Uh, if you walk through a high school these days, it's quiet because people are just caught up on their screens, on their phones or iPads or whatever. And so we want to get your attention. So we ended up writing something that's going to be my next single coming out at the end of October. <laughs> And it's called Get Your Act Together. It was probably the funnest session I've had ever. And like I told you in the 90s, I, I started getting interested in that type of music, funk music. You know, Anastasia, that American artist, when, she, when her record came out, I was like, oh, man, that's exactly what I wanted to do. And they all told me in Norway that that doesn't sell in Norway. You know, don't don't even think about doing that. And I'm like, yes, it does. You know, it sells in Norway. <laughs> Now I've made something kind of in the same vein, you know, the, the funky, soulful, powerhouse type of up-tempo, cool type of music that I can't wait to release. How great is it that you don't have to wait for a label to say, sorry, we have to put it out third quarter, fourth quarter, because we have this other thing, or, you know, or keep pushing you back. We're working with this, like push back. Awesome. How great does that feel? It's and I awesome. Feel like, yeah. I feel like the music, um, Janda Jackson and Sheryl Crow talked about that they're basically done making albums. They're like, when a song hits me, they're like, why spend all this money in production time putting a whole album together if the playlist, the streaming, they just mix up the, the, the songs anyway. Mm -hmm. Why don't I just make a song and release it instead of feeling that the song is getting old a year from now? Exactly, exactly. No, so we, we did that and I was on cloud nine walking out of the studio and then they say, you know what? We have next Friday's free as well. You want to work with us again? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I'm coming back. Cancel everything. Don't worry about the Christmas tour. It'll take care of itself, you know? So <laughs> back in the studio and we got back, we got at it again and we wrote something that I thought was even cooler, you know, coming out. It's coming out later. <laughs> so how many other songs were worked on? Well, then I had to do my Christmas tour, obviously, and um, I started planning on going to Nashville because they all they went back to Nashville and they have their studio and their place there. So I went, I uh, bought a plane ticket to go to Nashville. I had a little window between, you know, concerts and concerts. <laughs> so I got a, a plane ticket on the 7th of March and I was going back, I think, on the 18th to in order to go right into concerts again the day after kind of thing, you know, with full, a full jet lag and all. And I thought it's worth it, you know, just get a grip, just do it, you know? So I went to Nashville on the 7th and on the 12th, the world shut down. So I got stuck there and we actually ended up doing seven songs together. Well, and, yeah. and the, the good thing is that you have, you know, because I mean, the world just shut down everywhere. And I think the hard part is there's the creatives that are still like, I'm trying to make something, but how do I make it? You need that creative outlet. And so I think joy and mother, I just love the fact that 
you're making music today that is still making people want to listen to music and not turn it off because we're so inundated with the visuals of the news and everything going on that I think sometimes you just need to, you know, autopilot music. We're just fall into that moment. But I love- I really so honored to be on your show, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, but I, I love the, the the story behind it, and I know that your story goes even deeper than what we discussed. But I also think it, it's it's a story of resilience that you, prior to the, the your debut album, you had basically just done. Give, you know what I mean? And it's like the label wasn't like mm-hmm. she's going to make it big in Japan. I don't think anyone would have thought. You know what I mean? Would have thought it was big uh, that it would be no. that it would be big in Japan. So. You're an artist who has really kept your sound, but evolved. And, mm-hmm. you know, and it's hard. And, and there are, I think I don't, I'm not an artist in that way at all. But I know that all of the artists that I, that I, I, that I love and I appreciate all have had that struggle. All have dealt with lecherous men. All have dealt with people using power. I have this power. Mm-hmm. I control your career. I can help you. Or I can hurt you. This happens more than people want to acknowledge it happens. That mm-hmm. and 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 but young, even doing the research that I did with Britney Spears, it's like they talk early on, they're like, she's a 16-year-old girl. What does she know about reading this this contract? And yeah, does, nothing. And does her lawyer nothing. have the best interest of her in mind? Exactly. Yeah, there are so many traps to go into when when you're dealing with people with power and people that want to contract you to something. It's just, you know, do use a lawyer. That's my first tip. (laughs) Don't listen to somebody who says, oh, so you don't trust me? How are we going to work together if you don't, you know? And especially if they have the power to say that they have the power to ruin your career unless you do this and that, you know, then that should be a big red flag. But it's hard to know that when you're 16. And I mean, 16 years old, 16 year olds today are much more mature, I think, than I was when I was 16. I was, I was 21 when I signed that record deal. And so I was an adult, I was responsible for my own actions. And uh, there was no way I could get out of it um, without paying, you know, a lot to a lawyer to try to get get rid of the management, you know. So uh, I, I think I've paid my dues, like Anastasia says, <laughs> I've paid my dues. Uh, and I'm just so happy to be able to, to create music again and to be able to keep the hand on the steering wheel. You know, like I, I'm, I have my own record label now. I, I decide for the music, I decide when it comes out, I decide who I work with, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm the boss now. Love it. And that's got to be, I mean, that's got to feel great going from cover bands and, and driving around and, and playing, okay, you want to hear this song? You want to hear that? Okay, I'll, I guess I'll, yeah. you know, you're doing yeah. what the consumer wants and you've got the mm-hmm. record contract, you've got the success, you've got people that, that knew your voice, that appreciate your voice. Then you just said, done. And now it's mm-hmm. like this, this evolute, this butterfly evolution, this caterpillar that's finally opening into like they were they were an entity before they're mm-hmm. still part of this entity but boy have they grown yeah right yeah and so so 
So I, I wish I could have the experience I have now when I was 21, mm -hmm. but you know. <laughs> but it's also, that's what brought us here, you know what I mean, here today and, and, and your career. Yeah. And, and the last thing is, how important is art, is music to you and your life? I think that most people, and including myself, don't realize the importance of it because it's all around us all the time. But uh, we had a... Um, uh, kind of like a demonstration a few years ago here uh, because they were trying to change something about the uh, copyright uh, law in Norway. And in, in doing so, uh, they would basically take, take away our livelihood. So we had a campaign where uh, we just made our screens black. Uh, you know, how would you feel about seeing this video with no music, with no sound? How would you feel about this concert with no sound? You know, wouldn't it be strange if you had no music? And and it's I think it's you don't realize how important it is until you take it away because now it's always just there, available at any place, any time. Uh, we got it on our phones. We got all the music in the world on our phones. You know, so I think music is is very important. I think it has something to do with the quality of life. And it has something to do with uh, expressing yourself. And if you can't express yourself, if you're in a situation where you're either really, really hurt or you're in mourning, uh, maybe those would be the most extreme um, states to be in where you, you have to have help from outside, uh, from people who have thought these thoughts before you and maybe put a, put a different angle on them or put different words to what you're feeling. Um, so I think art in terms of either music or poems or even paintings, even movies, uh, can, can inspire and it can change a life completely. Just one little sentence from a poem can be powerful enough to change the, the direction of someone's life if it's given to them at the right time. So maybe, maybe it's life support. Okay, Trina, so how about we give the audience a little snippet of your song, Joy. Uh, to the listener out there, I'm going to be putting playlists up uh, with links to all of the songs we talked about in this episode. You can find that playlist on theoriginaldoll.com and through our socials. Well, if you want to check me out, you can definitely find a lot of information on my website called trinarain.com, and that's spelled T-R-I-N-E-R-E-I-N.com. <laughs> my name is pronounced Trina Rain. I was born in San Francisco, so my name should have been spelled T-R-I-N-A, but my mom was Norwegian, so we spell it in the way that you spell Catherine without the K-A. Joy, coming back to the reason I sing. My go-to good energy, I'm just soaking it in, and all I need is just a little more joy. <laughs> Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this bonus episode of the Original Doll Podcast. We resume our regular episodes next week. But be on the lookout for bonus episodes that dives a little deeper into the music and history of some hits that you know, some hits that you might have forgotten, but some hits that undeniably are hits. Don't you want my iconography? Don't you understand? Then follow me. Don't you want to aim for stars you see? Don't you want my icon? Mm -hmm.